0: Well it's really, it's really great to have you with us, thank you for so much for coming uh, to our first six back. I went to uh, Sheffield this, this week, who's ever been Sheffield? The epicenter of progressive culture, it is not. Um, well I went there to do some stuff with a, a bunch of um, people there, some, some training with them and um, I, was, I went with my good friend Bob Barstow, let's have a cheer for Bob Barstow. As loud as it's gonna get, buddy. <laughs> but we went together, and um, so we, were, we set off. We, we, I set off, and um, there was this funny noise in the car. Fueled the car, got to the petrol station, found a nail through my tyre. So it was 6:20 in the morning. I thought, I know who'll be awake. My good friend Connor Welch. <laughs> hey. So I called Connor, and uh, he's our student worker here, and he very generously lent me his car, uh, so that we could drive to um, drive to Sheffield in luxury. Wood paneling. <laughs> you don't know what that is, but neither do I. <laughs> very comfortable seats. A great knocking sound when you press the brakes. I think was related to the warning sign on the dashboard about the brakes. <laughs> but it's fine because when you're on the motorway, you don't really brake that often, do you? So it's it's all good. But um, it was it was very very generous of him. Um, but on the way back, I was um, Bob had left me to go to York. Boo. Okay, anyway, Bob had left me to go to York to some kind of um, shindig there. And so I, I went to see my old nan, and then I drove, well, my. and my current nan, <laughs> yeah, my grandma. And I went to. Uh, I was driving back late, and I thought I'd better listen to some stuff. Now, the thing about Connor's Cars, I couldn't work out how to switch Radio 1 off. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did switch it to Radio 4. I, I don't know if I switched it back. <laughs> but Radio 4 in the evening, not cool. Okay, so um, I. I but Connor has this great device, it's like a it's a cassette. And you plug it in and plug it to your iPhone and you can play podcasts through a cassette. I know, so fancy, retro fancy. So anyway, I thought I'd listen to some some, you know, some podcasts on the way home, some driving at the motorway in there. In luxury, I have to say, absolute luxury. The seat's so low. And um, and I was listening to all, I was listening to some podcasts and um, I got to the end of my uh, podcast trying to explain the, um, the American election result, which uh, I didn't feel particularly inspired by the end of it. And one of them was um, Trump tweet by tweet. You need to put yourself in a dark room. Just listen carefully. But, um, so I got to the end of that, and I, I, but I had this uh, podcast I downloaded called um, Zach Exelry Wants to Change the World. And I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. I had about, like, 20 minutes to go. So I put on this um, this podcast called Zach Exel, He wants to change the world, uh, or has a plan to change the world. So. And uh, this guy was telling his story, and he was a, a democratic uh, activist in America. So he was a part of the... Demo- well, he wasn't really part of the democratic, pa- democratic Party, but they were the most closely aligned to his worldview. And um, he'd been working with them for, for many years. He'd... Uh, actually made the first internet website that called people to a demonstration in 2000, in the year 2000. What were we doing in the year 2000? Um, In the year 2000, he made this website, and it was like totally radical at the time that you could use the internet to gather masses of people to protest. But he called, um, he made this website which called people to come and protest against the, the George W. Bush, Al Gore controversy of the year 2000. I won't ask you how old you were in the year 2000, but um, and it was amazing. And something like I think it says something like uh, 30,000 people turned out for this demonstration, based on his website, which. It shows you how far we've come because millions, of course, have come because of the power of internet over the last over the last few days. But Zach Exelby was part of that, and he actually created this website. And so he was a big shot in the political world, and and he worked on uh, presidential campaigns. He worked on the the Dean campaign in 2004, and uh, he didn't make it all the way. And then, of course, John Kerry was the candidate, and he lost. And um, Zach Exelry was massively involved in this desire to change the world and he thought he would do it through politics and so he was doing all this stuff and then he says in his own story around about 2006-2007 he just started to lose faith that the world could be changed and so he actually missed the Obama primaries and all this stuff and he says he just went to North Carolina started working on a doctorate. And he he lost faith that the world could be changed, that things could be different. Um, He was being interviewed, and then he said, "But he always had this innate belief that maybe there was a God. You know that somehow there was something sacred, something divine, something beyond it all. But he'd grown up in massively atheistic circles." You know, the kind of places where they were militantly atheistic. Christianity to them, faith to them, God to them, Jesus to them, had been on the side of the state. Had been on the side of, you know, had got too involved in politics and too involved in all kinds of things. And so for him, God was an idea that he'd always believed in, but never something he thought would change the world. And so I'm, um, I'm by now I'm near near connor's house and i'm i'm into this podcast so i'm like this guy's really interesting i mean he like created protests through the internet which is something you and i live with every day of our life so i'm so like into zach Exor at this time i'm like when i get home i'm following him on twitter because we do right in fact i tweeted about him and he liked my tweet i was like yes <laughs> bear in mind i have like 80 followers on twitter because i left and came back and uh, none of you follow me anyway so <laughs> i don't even follow me um so so then I'm pulling up at his house and then suddenly he says and he's not even really he's just talking about this sense of like disillusionment and what he's doing and and then suddenly he says and then I became a Christian but then I had to get out of the car because I've got to give the car back to Connor and Jen so for the next like 12 hours 18 hours all I can think about is what happened to Zach Exelry because he went from being like this atheistic uh, or kind of not atheistic, but not believing in God, but from an atheistic point of view, like not believing in the God we know, atheistic family who wants to see the world changed, but is totally disillusioned, to suddenly saying, and then I became a Christian. And then I just had to get out of the car and walk to my house and sleep and, you know, take the children to school and stuff. And they don't care about Zach Axelry. Kind of um, and so I went for a run because I'm training uh, for a marathon, which was one of my New Year's resolutions. Um, and so I went for a run and listened to the rest of it. And uh, he started to talk about how he just discovered that his impression of Jesus was all wrong. That everything he thought about Jesus was wrong, that Jesus was countercultural. that Jesus was challenging the prejudices, that Jesus was for women, that Jesus was for the oppressed, that Jesus was for the poor and the marginalized, and those who felt like the last and the least and the lost, that Jesus was for them. And so Zach Exelry, he joined all these, these mega-churches, like the opposite of where he came from, and, like he, he's, and he just found Jesus. He discovered Jesus. Our series during this t- term is Discover Jesus. We are on a journey as a church. We started four months ago. This gathering started a little less than four months ago. And we're on a journey. What does it mean for us right now in the year 2017 to follow Jesus? We started last month by thinking, last term, by thinking through some values. And we looked at uh, the letter to the Philippians. And then Christmas happens, And then we came back and we prayed we want to invite you this term to join us in discovering jesus and we're going to journey through luke's gospel and what we're going to do over 11 weeks is we're going to look at the people jesus meets what does it show us about him how does that reveal to us who we are how does it reveal to us who jesus is How does it reveal to us the thing that we're looking for? As we discover Jesus, how does Jesus show us a way in which the world can be changed? Because so many of us are looking for something more. So many of us are like, how God? How does it get better? How does it change? So many of us on a day-to-day basis we are like, is there something beyond this? Zach Exelry discovered Jesus. And our invitation this term is to do the same, to discover Jesus. So we're going to look at these various stories, interactions with people who other people had discarded, with, uh, with the broken, with those who society discarded, like in first century Judaism, very often women were the bottom of society. And Jesus lifts up women over and over again. We're going to look at that. We're going to hear from all different kinds of people, from myself, but from the team as well. We're going to hear from all kinds of uh, different um, men and women coming to share with us from these passages we want to be a church this term that goes on a journey and discovers Jesus for ourselves our invitation to you of course is to join us on that but we're going to start tonight with this talk and it's called rivers and deserts and we're going to start by looking at Jesus because if we're to discover the Jesus through the people he meets First of all, we need some understanding of who he thinks he is and what he thinks he's doing here. We need to begin as he begins. We need to begin right at the beginning of his ministry. So we're going to meet Jesus here in Luke chapter 3, 21. Jesus is um, in front of a man called John, John the Baptist. He's like the last of the Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets, they would herald the kingdom. They would call in the kingdom. They would announce the kingdom. And John the Baptist, he was a kind of crazy guy. Lived in the desert, wore uh, camel hair, ate locusts, was part of this kind of strange little group of people. But he was calling people back to God. He was announcing the kingdom. And he's baptizing people. And um, in baptism, what he was doing is he was using... The river, which is such a symbol in Israel of freedom. You know, if you were a Jew, you knew that your freedom had come by passing through the river. God had parted it, and as you walked through it, you'd received your freedom. It's ingrained upon the mindset and the life of the Jewish people. And so the river Jordan is so significant in Jewish history, in, Jewish, in the Jewish story. And so John is baptizing people in the Jordan, in the river, and he's calling people to come and repent, to turn back to God, to turn their eyes around. So that's what repent means. It means turn around and discover freedom. And he's doing it in a river. He's pointing to their own story and saying, look, there's freedom again. And so he's been baptizing people, and in the the other stories, in the other Gospels, the Gospels are just where we find the story about Jesus. In the other Gospels, we find that John objects to baptizing Jesus, but Jesus says, no, it has to be this way right now. And in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, it says this, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So Jesus is stood in the river. This symbol of freedom. This symbol to the Jewish people of God bringing you from one place to another. From captivity to freedom. From despair to hope. From death to life. The river is so symbolic of it. And John has been using it to baptize people, to announce the kingdom of God. And John is stood, and Jesus stands before him and says, Baptize me. And Jesus is baptized. And it says that in the place of the river, it came like the presence of God came upon him. And as the presence of God came upon Jesus, it spoke these words of affirmation over him You are my son. With you, I'm well pleased. Another way of looking at this is this, you are my son, my beloved. You know, sometimes when we read these words in English, they lack, because we're English, they lack the emotion, they lack the depth, they lack the heart of it. But in the river, as the presence of God comes down on Jesus, who stood in the place of freedom between the two places, Between death and life, as he stood there in that symbolic place, the the presence of God, it says, comes down upon him. And it speaks these deeply emotional, affirming, loving, passionate words. And the words are this, this one is my son. This one is my beloved With this one, I'm well pleased. Not just like, oh, I'm well pleased with that. But like I'm satisfied with it. I'm deeply satisfied that this person is enough for me. I'm delighted in him. I'm delighted in him. You know, in the place of the river, a word is spoken over the life of Jesus that affirms his identity. It affirms who he is. It speaks it out over him. I was speaking to my um, a good friend of mine called Benjamin Sandell, who's going to come here in May, I think, and um, with a team from Finland. And um, he, I was speaking to him this week. He just had a baby, and I was like, "Oh, so how's life?" And he was like, "Life is great, in a different way to life was great before." <laughs> like as the like the tiredness etched all over his face. You know, my children, my old, my youngest boy is four this uh, this month, next month. No, March. So in a few months. And um, I feel as though I'm like out of the very tired stage now. Although, you know, let's, let's pray that's true. And um, so it's fun to speak to him. But he was like, life is great in a different way. And you know, there was something about our conversation where I understand what he means. Because for me, having children helped me understand something of the father heart of God. Because there's something about my children, when I look at them, I'm like, yeah, I get it, like, like, today I've battled to do um, number work because he knows it, right? So he knows that it's like 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. He just doesn't want to write it down because he knows it. It's like, why do I need to write it down? Which is a difficult thing to explain because I need you to prove it. But, um, you know, I get it. Like, I, I look at them sometimes and I'm like, yeah. But, you know, I look at them and I'm like, you know, you are my son you are my beloved, with you I'm well pleased, with you I'm delighted. You know that sense of them being enough. We we have tried to have this habit in our family of standing at their door each night and being like you know we love you, we're proud of you, you're a joy to us. Why do we do that? We do that because we don't want our children to have to grow up and earn our affection. We want them to live from the place of our affection. To live life from a celebration of being enough, of being good enough right now. What happens in the river with Jesus? The Father affirms him, He speaks these words over him. Of course, it's an echo of the words of God over all creation, because God said over creation, very good. And now over His Son, He speaks the same thing again, very good. Very good. And Jesus is the one who represents us. What happens to Jesus in the river is what can happen to each and every one of us. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the affirming voice of God in your life? Do you know that you're enough? Do you have that deep sense of being sad that someone, something, somewhere is satisfied with you right now? That you're delighted in. That you're his beloved. Because that's what Jesus comes to do. He comes to show us that in him we can have that. The river is the place of God's affirmation. It's the place where he stands at the door and speaks over us. We love you. I love you. I'm proud of you. You're a joy to me. That's the story we're telling. That God loves his people. So why is that not always obvious? I mean, look around at our culture. Look around at what's going on with the friends that we know. Look around. There's this chronic lack of confidence you know, read the statistics. So many people suffering from com- lack of confidence, from anxiety, from not knowing what to do. So much so that we have whole TV shows dedicated to the affirmation of like someone might have something special. What is going on? If it's true that God has spoken Words of affirmation over his creation, over his people. That if those are repeated in Jesus, then why is there this deep lack of confidence? This deep lack of knowledge of it. Well, I want to suggest to you that there is one question. There is one question that has defined all of our lives. And it's this did god really say that you know, think about the beginning you know the stories those creation poems and narratives that start off the whole bible that says god made the world and it was amazing and then you have that symbolic story of the snake saying to the people did god really say that and what happens over and over and over and over again that question, did God really say that? What's happening in our culture over and over again? Sure, it might not be, did God say that? But the words that's happening over and over again is, is that true of you? You could be something. You, you're you worth something. You. So much so that we've constructed whole ways to make ourselves feel as though we might be worth something. Did God really say that? Let's read Luke 4. 1, 2, 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up on a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor It has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. You know, Jesus is spoken of in the river with these words of affirmation. But then it says he goes to the wilderness, to the desert place. And what happens In the desert. Well what happens in the desert is what always happens in the desert. The things spoken in the river are tested. Jesus is taken to the wilderness. It says that he he fasted for 40 days. You know fasting is not about trying to make God do something. Fasting is about learning to rely upon him. And so there's Jesus in the wilderness. And it says he's hungry, which is you know, a slight understatement. As he's been fasting for 40 days. And what does the devil do? He begins to test those promises that were spoken in the river. Did God really say that? First thing he does is this. He says to him, why don't you make yourself some food? You know, there's three things that most of us will be tempted on in our lives. The first one is provision. What does he do? The devil says, rely on yourself. Provide for yourself. Give yourself some food. You can do it. Use your power. Use what you have. Don't rely on God. Rely instead upon yourself. Provide for yourself satisfy that deep hunger within. Jesus says it's not, it's written man shall not live on bread alone. And Jesus says he knows that to give in, to give in to that temptation to to somehow just provide for himself is to no longer rely on God, to be fed somewhere else. Do you know the moments of testing When we stand in the desert, it's so easy to forget that he said over us that he's our father, that he will provide for us. It's so easy to forget that he says, I'll meet all your needs. I would do anything to meet the needs of my children. But it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to forget that he's a good father. That he's got our backs. And we begin to try to provide for ourselves to satisfy that hunger we all have within ourselves. And, you know, it's there, isn't it? And sometimes it's really there. And we need it. We have needs. We have appetites. We have desires. There's parts of us that have to be filled. Now, of course, appetite and the need for provision is a good thing. It's what's kept us going so far. We've been eating, most of us. We've been doing it, right? But it's when our whole lives become tailored towards trying to get a fix, some kind of satisfaction away from God. And of course that could be food, but it's all kinds of things that we might not be provided for relationally, that we might not be provided for sexually, that we might not be provided for, that there may not be enough for us we look for our own ways to be satisfied, that hunger within us. What's spoken of in the river, that where the children of God is tested in the desert. But Jesus says this, we don't live on bread alone. And he's referring to the fact that we trust God to give us what we need to fulfill that longing in all of us. Not being able to test Jesus on provision, the enemy of God, whose only plan really is to destroy and to disrupt, does it on, tries on position. He said to him, I'll give you all the authority. He takes Jesus and he says, look, everything before you, I can give to you. I can make your life something. I can build you into something. He plays to the ambition of Jesus. Jesus knows by now that he's to be the one who rescues the world. He knows that he's got this kingdom mission and the enemy of God would offer him the position. He takes him to a high height, says the whole kingdom can be yours. I can give it to you. Just worship me instead. Position, ambition. There's nothing wrong with having a position of trust, of authority. There's nothing wrong with things like leadership. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious for our lives. You know, God made you to do something. The issue is when those things become turned the wrong way around, when they become the driving factors so that we try to get ahead of each other, so that we have slogans like, let's put ourselves first. And position and ambition become the thing. That's what's happening. See, Jesus knew that when the Father spoke over him, this is my son, he was affirming his mission. When he put his presence, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit upon him, he was affirming his calling. But in the desert, it's tested. Jesus says, you know, my life is designed to worship God. I'm not here to build myself a position, to prove my worth to you. Finally, the devil says to Jesus, let's test his protection. Will God protect you? So he says to Jesus, take yourself up and throw yourself down. And you know the angels will protect you. And let's face it, that would be a pretty good show too. You know, throw yourself down. Prove to everyone here that God approves of you so much that he'll rescue you, that he'll protect you. Prove his protection. You know, it's so easy to give in and to be driven by fear. Fear is such a thing right now. It drives people to do all kinds of things. To, to, it causes us to become smaller. It causes us to, to, to narrow our horizons. It causes us to look in on ourselves. And fear is what happens when we feel like no one's there to protect us anymore. But when Jesus is affirmed by the presence of God and the voice of the Father in the river. Jesus has been affirmed that God will protect him, that the presence God's given him will be protected in him. Jesus says, don't test God. We don't need to put him to the test. It's not like he'll ever fail. I am... all of these things are things that we will wrestle with in our lives. Provision. You know, if we, like, if you, like me, grew up in a family where there wasn't loads of, there um, wasn't plentiful of, in terms of money and food, and there wasn't always a lot around, then provision will be a battle. You know, that's been my story. If you grew up with a sense of, of, of needing to either earn your fa- family's affection or prove your worth, then position, it will be a temptation to try to somehow justify our existence on this planet. If bad things have happened, and they almost certainly will have, life can teach us that we won't be protected and the enemy in the desert will repeat the lie: Did God really say He was for you? We all face these three things, but very often we have one that dominates our thinking. I was um, speaking to my uh, to a friend of mine who many of people here have heard of before, a guy called Kel. It's of about the situation, and he was like, "He's Danish," and he was like, "Ah, oh, but rich." What is your dark side? I thought I was in some kind of Star Wars movie. Like, you know, I transferred into some kind of Scandi, dark, you know, noir drama or something. But it's like, what is your dark side? And I, I, and I, was, I was a little taken aback because, you know, we were just talking. <laughs> it's not a normal way to talk to people. <laughs> you know, during coffee after the gathering, hey, John, what is your dark side? <laughs> it's weird. But, um, but he, he was saying that, you know, we all suffer from various things that will be our weakness you know we're all susceptible to temptations but there will be one temptation that just nags at us that continually asks the question did God really say he'll provide for you did God really say he'll make something of you did God really say he would protect you the answer that Jesus shows us is this He remembers what was spoken over him in the river when he stood in the desert. We don't doubt in the desert that which was spoken in the river. We remember it. And we don't have to make it true of ourselves because God speaks it over Jesus. And you and I are rescued through Jesus. Because there's one other time in Jesus' life where he'll be tested again about the Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jerusalem lies before him and the mountains of Galilee, the safety of Galilee lies behind him. And he'll choose there to place his hands, his life in his Father's hands. When he does that, he remembers again in the place of testing what the Father spoke. And when he does that, In the moment of Gethsemane, when he places his life into the hands of the Father, he places our life into the Father's hands too. And through the cross, and through the resurrection, all those things spoken of about Jesus become truth for us too. The promise of God, the presence of God, the provision of God, the protection of God, all of them become ours because Jesus is for us the one who goes before he's the one for us who receives the promise and through Gethsemane where he chooses once more to trust in his father and through his death and his resurrection those promises become our promises because we are like it says in Colossians chosen in him chosen in him again. So that the moment of baptism is not just Jesus's moment of baptism, but it's ours. Those words of affirmation are not just Jesus's words of affirmation, they become our words of affirmation. And it also means this, when we're tempted, when we're stood in the desert, when those questions become our questions. We don't have to fight because Jesus fights for us, because Jesus overcomes for us. We don't have to reason. We don't have to say, oh, well, you know, God's, we just say Jesus. And the enemy of God hears the name Jesus and is reminded of his defeat and he flees. And because of his death and resurrection, you and I, we get to be free from those things. It's him who does it for us. He receives the promise. He secures the promise. And he gives us the promise. Let's stand. We're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come.